morning. We're going to be in Hebrews, uh, the end of chapter 6, and then headed into chapter 7. So, as you are turning or typing Hebrews 6 and 7, um, we have been in Hebrews now for several weeks. We have um, at least a couple, a few months to go, as we're just kind of working our way through this, this letter. And that's, that's what we tend to do here at Redeemers. We just work our way through um, different books, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over the course of time, um, taking as much time as we need to see the overall kind of thrust and, and context of what's going on. Hebrews is, is unique in that we don't know specifically who wrote it. There's a lot of guesses out there. Um, we know that it was written to a group of believers who had come out of Judaism, and so they are currently facing some struggle and some persecution and are questioning whether or not they want to return to Judaism and leave Jesus behind. And the author of Hebrews is just saying as strongly and as vehemently as he can, don't do that. Don't go back. Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. He is better. And if you go back, you're going to lose right who he is and what he is. And so a lot of what he's going to do is he's going back through familiar Jewish um, situations, stories, teachings, systems, and it's just weaving how Jesus is a better version of that, has trumped it, has come over it, has, has made it be understood in a, in a greater level. And so highlighting Jesus. And ultimately, a couple of the questions that Hebrews is going to pose for us is this, is one, how is it that we approach God? Right, And so if you were with us earlier this year, we worked through the Old Testament prophetic book of Amos. And in Amos, God is terrifying. And he cares deeply about sin. And he is pursuing those who are not rightly reflecting his image. And it is, um, there's judgment. And so we, we know this side of God, and yet we're being told we're to approach God. And so how is it when we are rebels and sinners and opposed to him... And have not kept his law perfectly. How is it that we would approach this ferocious, wonderfully awesome and powerful God? And Hebrews is looking to lean into that question. Um, and then second, is he's just holding Jesus up and saying, take another look. No matter how much you think of him this morning, he is better than that. And so if you don't think much of Jesus, he's better than you think of him. And if you think a lot of Jesus, he is better than you think of him. He is more and so we're going to read um, a little bit of a, a longer passage this morning. Hebrews is um, not the, the easiest book. He even, last week we saw, he basically takes kind of an aside. And he was teaching on Jesus being the high priest. And then basically stops and says, but you can't handle it. Like you, you are infantile in your thinking. You're not growing up in maturity and so he basically kind of rebukes them, chastises them, encourages them, and then he comes back into the argument that he had already started. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, 
He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without a father or a mother or a genealogy, having neither the beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though, the, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might... One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right, I know that was a substantial amount of scripture. Um, and that it would be very easy in this passage to get lost in the weeds, okay? But we need to kind of see the, the overall um, length of what is going on here because he's really making one argument, all right, in the end of 6 through chapter 7, all right? And so I think we're going to be able to, to kind of look at this substantial, I think, 40-some-odd verses and really kind of come back and, and begin to see this, this thrust of an argument that is being made. Um, this is why, right, he, he says to them, right, Hey, I want to talk to you a lot about Melchizedek and about the high priestly system, but I don't know if you're able to handle it, right? And so that's why even for us this morning, we could look at this and go, I don't want to really, there's too much to pull out. There's too much to dig into. It makes me tired. Like, how do I even focus here? Would we, would we just kind of lean into this and we have broken it up? And I think that you'll begin to see kind of a thread that is being woven here. Where he starts back at the end of chapter 6 was he brings up Abraham in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, what he's referring to here is we find in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22 is that at one point God pursues Abraham. Abraham is um, known as Abram at this point. He's a pagan. He is not worshiping God, right? He's worshiping other gods. And God basically intervenes in his life and says, no longer are you going this way. You're going to follow me. You're going to trust me and you're going to come after me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a people. And through this land and this people, the world is going to see who I am, what my character is like. And the nations are going to be drawn to you and I'm going to be worshipped because what I'm going to do through you and your line, your lineage, your family, your nation. Right? Like that he just takes this man and says, you're mine now. And he calls him. And so this was the promise, right, that was laid out. And this is where the nation of Israel comes from, through Abraham and Sarah's line. Right? That, that a nation is birthed. This are, these, they are the people of promise. This is the promise that he is calling them to. And so what he's saying is he's taking this audience that is very familiar with the Jewish story. And he's saying, look, I made... Some, I've made some hard statements so far. And I'm telling you that God keeps his word. How do we know that God keeps his word? And he takes them all the way back to the birth of their, their, their people, their nation. And he says, God called a man without children. And said he was going to make him a great nation, people. And now the nation of Israel stands as descendants of this one because God keeps his promises. He says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And Abraham, having patiently waited, because he was an old man, when finally a son obtained the promise. In verse 16, for some people swear by something greater than themselves. Right? We know this, that, that if you need to make a promise, we know, hey, we, we would say, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Right? That's ideal. But what do you hear people say all the time? Right? Like, I swear on my mother's grave. Right? Or they'll, they'll say something just really bold or audacious, because what they're saying is, I know you may not believe me, you may not trust me. And so they try to find a person or a thing or a situation that they're like, you, you wouldn't mock that, 
And so I'm going to swear on that. In Yemen, you would often have someone talking to you, and all of a sudden, as they're, as they're making a promise, they would start touching beneath their eye as they're talking. And what they're saying is they're touching beneath their eye is, if I don't do what I'm saying, you can take my eye, right? I promise by my eye. Or another one would be, if I don't do it, and they're talking, and they're just kind of like hitting, hitting their neck. What they're saying is, if, if I don't do what I've just promised or said I would do, you can take my head. Now listen, you're like, oh, those... Those Arabs, they're so violent. Okay, go, go to a kindergarten class this week, right? Right, remember the little, the little rhyme, right? Stick a thousand needles in my eye if I lie, right? Like that's morbid and gross too, right? So what, what, what we're seeing is that we, we tend to make these lavish, big promises when we're trying to say, I, I really, I solemnly swear, I solemnly promise, I want you to know how much I promise we try to find something. We reach out and say, by that, I promise. God says, there's nothing greater than me. And that's not arrogance. That's him saying, what, what is it that I would swear by other than myself? So he says, first off, my character, I do not lie. But if you need an oath, if you need me to swear, I swear by myself. He's like, he's like I'm, I'm doubling down on this. I, I swear by me the unchangeable, the one that will not lie, I'm going to make these promises happen. So what, is, what are the promises that the author of Hebrews is trying to, to put hope in us? If we look back at chapter 6, where we were last week, um, verse 11, he says this, We desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end. What he's saying is, hey, you, you're considering leaving Jesus. Are you insane? He will keep you to the end. It's not based on your ability to hold on to him. It's on his ability to hold on to you. He has promised to secure you, that there is a promised land waiting for you, that there is assurance and hope and peace. And he's saying, the same one who made a nation out of nothing has said, your salvation is secure by his strong hand, by his power, by his might. That's, that's why he wants us to believe that God does not lie, that he commits to his word and he sees it through. And so how do we know that, right? That's the question that is, well, how do we know that? How do we know that? How do we trust that? And the author of Hebrews is saying, because Jesus is a different kind of high priest than you've ever known, right? So that's, that's kind of the foundation that's been laid. And then he ends up beginning to talk about Melchizedek who is this kind of mysterious figure in Scripture. He is mentioned three places. In Genesis 14, for just a few verses. In Psalm 110, that is quoted here. And then here in Hebrews. And we don't know a lot about him. Right? He's kind of a mysterious figure. And what is going on is in Genesis 14, Abraham, who's now following God, is, who's, is beginning to build a nation, is beginning to follow after him, because that happens after Genesis 12. Now we're in Genesis 14. Some kings have raided the area. They've grouped together. They've raided the area and have looted and taken his, some of his family. And so Abraham gains, grabs his men and he goes and routes them and wins and wipes these, like, takes these, all of his stuff back, all the people back and wipes these kings out. And so he's coming back in and they're talking about the victory and all of a sudden, in Genesis 14, this guy shows up, and it's Melchizedek, right? And here's what we, we can see about him. 
After his return, talking about Abraham, from the defeat of the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, who we have not heard or seen ever before, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Right? That's it. That, like, that's, that's the story. It's this mysterious ca- character like steps in, says, blesses him. Abram like, tithes to this guy, recognizes that he's a priest of the Most High God. And then the story of Genesis just continues. And so the author of Hebrews is now picking up on this character. And so what we'll find is often in the Old Testament, many of the things that we look at, they're called types. And the types are a partial picture of something that will be revealed in a fuller way later on in Scripture. So we see this in the flood, right, that wipes out humanity, right? It's God's wrath and his judgment but the flood not, it, it, is that it, it occurred, but it's also pointing to God's wrath and his judgment coming upon Jesus eventually on behalf of us, right? That he's going to pour out wrath and judgment again, but this time it won't be on, the, on the, the guilty. It will be on the innocent on behalf of the guilty, right? That the ark is a type. It's showing a picture of God's rescue in Jesus, that Jesus is the greater ark because he, he saves us. He rescues us. The tabernacle, this place that they picked up and carried throughout the wilderness, was a place where God's presence um, resided, and yet they were separated from it. And so when we see Jesus enter the scene in the New Testament, he's called, the, like, right, like he's the tabernacle. Jesus dwells. He comes among us. It's saying he's the greater tabernacle. There's no separation now. He's come for us. And so many of the things we find in the Old Testament are giving us, a, are pointing us to a picture of something greater to come. Melchizedek was a person, was a man, but he is also a type pointing us to Jesus. Now the author here is not claiming that this mysterious dude walks up with no genealogy, with no descendants, right? With no, that he just like stepped in as like an angel or something. He's not claiming that, but he's saying in the biblical accounts, we don't know where he came from and we don't know where he went. We have like those few verses, and that's all we got. And so as far as we know, his priestly line has just continued on. And so what he's wanting to do is highlight some specifics about Melchizedek. The first being, there's no beginning to him, and there's no end in the story. That he is a priest forever. Because Jesus is going to step in, and his priestly, him, his role as a priest will not end. Right where in the in the Levite, the Jewish priestly system, men die. And the priestly line continues, but the men as priests do not. They die off. We then see the significance of his names. Right? That his name itself means king of righteousness. And then he was the king of Salem, which means peace. So he is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Hope you're seeing some connection to Jesus here. Right? That he is not just a priest, but he was a king. And in the Jewish system, you could be king or you could be priest. You cannot be both. 
that the priest had a duty, the king had a, a responsibility, they were not both, and yet here comes this guy, Melchizedek, who was both a priest and a king. Because there's another one coming who's going to be priest and king in Jesus. Right? And then we see this beginning to be foreshadowed in this strange, mysterious figure. And then it says that he blessed Abraham. That the superior blesses the inferior. And so what we're seeing is as they're looking back in their Jewish history is that Abraham, this great father of the nation, he's saying there was one that came that was greater than him and it was Melchizedek because he tithed to him and Melchizedek blessed him. Right? So God blessed Abraham. The superior blessed the inferior. Then Melchizedek comes in and he blesses Abraham. The superior blesses the inferior. And so what he's wanting us to do is begin to look at these things in Melchizedek. That there was no beginning and no end. That his names are righteousness and peace. That he was both a king and a priest. And that he was superior to Abraham and the priest who would follow in Abraham's line. That's kind of, he's wanting to stir those thoughts in our minds. And then what he does, so he's kind of got this like, like percolating over here. And he goes in now to the priestly system in verse 11 of chapter 7. And he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, this is the Jewish priestly system, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? So he says this, If what we were looking to obtain could have happened through the priestly system, we would have just kept doing it until someone finally did it right. But he's saying it was not giving us the the perfection that we needed. It wasn't giving us the access to God that we needed because there was separation, right? There was a temple that only some people could go into. And then in the, the temple or in the tabernacle, there were certain rooms and veils that then separated even more until ultimately one person, one time a year, the high priest could go in. So he's saying, you want to know God, you want to have God, you want to approach God. And the system gets us down to one person, one time a year, walking into the presence of God in fear of their life. Yet we want to approach God. It's like this system wasn't going to do it. And then in verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He's saying, so it's not just a priest because you were born into a priestly family who was born into a priestly family who was born into a priestly family, but by the power of an indestructible life. It's like Melchizedek, was, he just shows up and he's a priest and he's a king. And then Jesus shows up not from the line of Levi, but from the line of Judah. And he's a priest not because he was born into it, but because it's who he is. This indestructible life, this unchangeable character, this perfect obedience and faithfulness to God as he begins to live the life that we were meant to live. So that he could die the death that we were meant to die. So that he could beat sin and Satan and death and live again. And so he's saying, look, the Levitical system hasn't brought us this. But Jesus has stepped in and he's a different kind of high priest. And so he continues to show him why the, the priestly system was not going to satisfy us. Look down at verse 23. The former priests were many in number. So he's saying it wasn't just one, it was many. 
Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He's like, the office continued, but the priests just kept dying. Right? Because they're marked by sin. They're marked by a need for God themselves. Verse 27, they needed to make sacrifices. It says, like those high priests who had to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this, right? And so he's saying, look, the high priest and the priest, they offered sins on your behalf, but they were also offered on their behalf because they were not holy. They were separated. They were sinners themselves. Verse 28 says, they were appointed in their weakness as high priests. Verse 11 reminds us there's no perfection. And we are reminded that there was separation because of the veil, because of the temple, because of the tabernacle. And so what he's showing them is, look, the priestly system wasn't going to accomplish what we wanted it to accomplish. And then there's this mysterious figure who is pointing us to someone else who's going to come and be a king priest as well. And so then he's looking at them and saying, it's Jesus. Jesus is the king and priest who has come after Melchizedek to rescue us. Why? Back to verse 23. They were many in number and prevented by death. He's one. He steps in and it's done. He gives himself as the sacrifice and it appeases, satisfies the wrath of God for all those who are guilty. He rescues us by his perfect sacrifice and it is done and it is permanent. Look in verse 24. He holds his priesthood, Jesus does, permanently because he continues forever because he's alive today. The death cannot hold him. That he was innocent, perfect, holy. Look at verse 26. We should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In verse, back to verse um, 19 of chapter 6. He says this. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So he's saying he's a forerunner. Like that he's gone before us. Meaning there should be some who will follow after him. When the high priest went in, no one came in after him. He says, when Jesus goes in, he goes into the very presence of God. The veil is removed. The veil is torn. And then he turns around and says, now y'all come on too. Like I'm giving you access back to the Father because of my life, my death, my resurrection. You get to come too. He's like, he's a better high priest. In verse 22, that he guarantees all the promises of God. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. And remember where this started was he says, so God swore by himself to Abraham. It wasn't just that he said he would do it. He then swore by himself. They then say, look, the priestly system was set up in the law, but there was no oath given. But in Psalm 110.4, as he's referring to Melchizedek, he says, you're going to be a priest forever, which we know is, a, is pointing us to Jesus. So he's saying, look, there wasn't just that he set Jesus up as the priest. It's that he swore by it as well. He made an oath. And if God kept his word to Abraham, he's going to keep his word to us that Jesus is the high priest. That through him, we have access to the Father. Through him, we get back to him. Through him, we have salvation. 
Through him, we will get to the promised land. Through him, we are rescued people. That is through Jesus. And he's just holding him up and saying, look, he is enough. He is sufficient. That it is through him as our forerunner that we will gain access and follow him. Church, that he is our righteousness and our peace. Like that he is those things. He has made us right with God and given us his righteousness. He has put us at peace with God when we were once sinners, enemies, rebels opposed to him. That he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And he gives it to us, those who trust and follow him, who is given access to the Father. And then in verse 25, what a powerful and beautiful verse Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen, church, since he always lives to make an intercession for them. Jesus is praying for you to the Father. He didn't just go to the cross on your behalf. He didn't just, right, defeat sin to rescue you. He intercedes on your behalf. That right now as you are struggling to believe, as you have fear or you have doubt or you're wrestling with sin... Jesus is interceding on behalf of you to the Father. Right? John 17 is the high priestly prayer where he prays for those who will come. It's us. Right? For those who will come before us, those who have come after us. In Luke 22, he tells Peter this. Hey, the evil one, he wants to sift you. But I'm praying for you. He doesn't say I'm going to stop it. He says I'm praying for you that you will not lose your faith. And we know that, that Peter denies Jesus three times. In the, in the aftermath of the cross and all these things that are going on, though that he is restored and he keeps the faith and he becomes, right, this bold, humbled servant of God. But what does Jesus say? I'm praying for you that you will keep your faith. This morning, some of you, you need to hear that. That God himself, through Jesus, is praying for you that you will keep your faith in him who has rescued you. That's why he is the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. Church, he was the forerunner. He is our righteousness and our peace. He is interceding on your behalf, which is like is a sermon in itself. right? Like, do we, can we even wrap our minds around that? And that he blesses the inferior, Right? We're the inferior. <laughs> that we are not holy, perfect. We were rebels. Right? God demonstrated his love for us in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he has pursued us to make us his. The superior has blessed the inferior. And made us, made us sons and daughters of the king. And then back in chapter 6 and verse 19. It says this. That he is our anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What's an anchor's job? Right, You drop it in the sea. To keep your boat where it needs to be. Despite the circumstances that are happening on the water. Whether things are simply drifting because there's things that are a little bit peaceful and you know a boat won't stay, it's going to drift in the current. Or whether a storm is battering the boat and would want to make it lost at sea 
the anchor like keeps it there. What he's saying is this to the church that he's writing Hebrews to. You are being battered by the circumstances, the pressures, the persecution of life. And it's making you want to leave Jesus when he's the very thing that will anchor your soul. Right? He's the one that will keep you and has given you access and has told you to enter through him back to the Father so that you can know the King and be at peace with the God of the universe. To be a rescued people, to be called a son and daughter of the King. Right, that we can say this morning that God loves you and you nod your head at that, but he likes you. Like he's brought you into his family. That he has anchored our souls and in because of that he is our refuge. And so the question then this morning is this, is do you see Jesus as an anchor? Is he an anchor in your life? Like has he, has he kept your soul when the circumstances of life have battered you? Do you see him interceding on your behalf? Because in verse 25 of chapter 7, I want you to hear this one more time. Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. Right, that's answering that question. How do we get back to God, near to God? Listen, through him, through Jesus. There is one way to the Father, and it's through Jesus. It's the only way. It's through him. And so are we as a church, are we as individuals, are we drawing near to God? And so the question then is this, and this is where we'll end, is how do we draw near? The first is this, do you have faith that the work that Jesus has accomplished is sufficient for you? Because if you do, your soul can rest. That Jesus has accomplished what you could not That he's done what you could not. And because of that, he has split the veil. He's with the Father. And he's invited you in. He's given you access through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Otherwise, you will continue to work in religion to try to figure out a way to do it. Or you'll continue to try to be a good enough person or a moral enough person. Or you'll try to figure out the knowledge to have. Do you have faith in the work being accomplished? Abraham, where we started this, hoped in a promise that God was going to do something great that he would never see in his lifetime. That he was going to build a people. Church, we don't have to hope in a promise that is to come. We get to hope in a promise that has already been done. Jesus has come. And he has done what we could not do and he's accomplished it on our behalf for the glory of God. The work of Jesus is done. And so is your faith in that. That is how you draw near, first and foremost. The second is this, is are you drawing near to God in his word? Right? Are we coming to scripture not as intellectuals looking to decipher all the nuance of everything so that we can intellectually win an argument or so that we, right? Are we coming because it's the word of God breathed into us? That is good for life and godliness. That it's, that it will satisfy our souls that we can eat and eat deeply and well in an inexhaustible feast. Do you come to God in prayer? Right? Because here's the thing. Most people who do not believe in God will say there are times in their life where they will cry out in prayer. They just don't know who they're crying out to. We've been given a name. We draw near to the Father through the Son. And you've been given access that you don't deserve. That you could not earn. That you could have never obtained. It wasn't like you were just kind of on the outside going, maybe God's going to like let me crawl in the window. 
You are a rebel, an enemy, deserving nothing but to be separated from God. And yet Jesus then says, no, 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 you're a son. You're a daughter. You're a part of the family, and you get it all because of what I have done on your behalf. And then he says, so you have access to the king of the universe, the creator. And we're like, ah, prayer. We draw near through the word. We draw near through our faith and the work accomplished. And we draw near in prayer. Knowing that when we don't know what to pray, Jesus is interceding on our behalf. We draw near through his spirit who seals us and, and, and is in a, a down payment of the promises that they will be kept. That we have God within us. And then finally this, we draw near through the church. Because he has made us a kingdom of priests. Where we get to continue to lift one another's chins. Say, look at him, he's good. I know you're tired. He's good. Let him anchor your soul. And when sometimes you're the one needing to be picked up and and brought along, and other times you're the one picking up and saying, no, no, we're not leaving you behind. We are headed to the promised land. He has anchored our souls. He is sufficient. He is enough. Don't be tempted to walk away. Be reminded of who he is. And we play the priestly role of interceding on behalf of one another of encouraging one another, of reminding of the truth, of lifting each other's chin. So church, what a bizarre passage. But what a rich and deep and beautiful passage. That Melchizedek is pointing us to the king and priest who has rescued us. And so this morning, the band's going to come back up. And you get to sing and pray and hear from a God who is alive today. Who has given you access because of Jesus. Right? And so we're going to sit if we need to sit. We're going to stand if you need to stand. You're going to sing if you need to sing. You're going to pray if you need to pray. But know that this is not just for your benefit. It is being heard and received by the king of the universe. And then we also have the Lord's Supper set up. Which is God's final and ultimate and complete word that we are home today because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That his body was crushed and broken and mutilated and beaten and killed so that yours wouldn't be. And that his blood was spilt so that yours wouldn't. Right? That that our hope today is not that you made it to church. Our hope today isn't that you've been in a Christian nation. Our hope today isn't that you occasionally read your Bible. Our hope isn't that you occasionally pray. Our hope isn't that you give a tithe. Our hope isn't in that your grandma right, was a believer or your dad was a preacher. Our hope is in Jesus. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so we set the table up for believers, those who have faith in that, to take the cup, to be remembered of his sacrifice, to take the bread, to be remembered of his life given, and that he defeated our enemies. And has made us right with the, with, the, with the Father. And so it will be set up for you to take at any point. But would we respond to the living God who anchors our soul this morning? In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, for those of us in the room whose souls are anchored in you, would we not grow weary of believing that, of seeing that? Would it not grow trite or old? Would you continue to give us eyes to see, hearts to consider, minds to ponder, 
feet follow. God, that we need more of you. Would we not grow bored with our rescue? Father, for those in the room right now who do not know you, God, would you call them by name? Would you tell them that that their sin no longer has to separate them from you because you have paid for it, and you're inviting them in as son, you're inviting them in as daughter to know the king? That there's nothing more that they could do, there's nothing that we could do to clean ourselves up, but that you have rescued us. So, Father, would we sing true things now, believing them in our heart? Would we take the cup and the bread, resting in your accomplished work on our behalf? And, God, would you give us the strength and the courage to be obedient as you lead and direct and guide in these moments? In Jesus' name, amen.